One of the most profound business realizations of recent years is the acceptance that only by working with nature can we unlock its innate regenerative capacity to solve for the issue that will affect every business, the climate crisis. That said, many companies are caught between the demands of the new regulations and rising expectations of stakeholders and a paralyzing fear of being accused of greenwashing where a company gets called out for disingenuous behavior or simply for not doing enough fast enough. So what can your company do? What type of commitments can you make that will ensure your sustainability efforts build the business and solve for our challenge future? Let's dive in. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm joined by Tim Christofferson, who is Vice President of Climate Action at Salesforce, a cloud-based customer relationship management platform that gives businesses tools to centralize and manage data. And we'll discuss how to leverage new strategies and tools to track and control your carbon footprint to better serve your business and our future. And how we as companies across the private sector and with public sector partners can course correct the climate crisis at a time when it's needed most. So Tim, welcome to Lead with We. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. So Tim, I was intrigued ever since the moment I saw your job title, VP of Climate Action at Salesforce. That is a new title and one I think that we're gonna see more and more of in the coming years. Explain what it means and what your role is there. I joined Salesforce last year and coming from a UN background, the last 15 years, I was heading the nature and climate team at the UN Environment Program. And when Salesforce approached me to take this job, my first reaction was actually a bit hesitant, to be honest. I've been in public service most of my career for over 20 years. I believe the best and most efficient way to work with and make sure the private sector does environmental good and no harm is to regulate them. It's right. strong environmental regulation. And that I still believe, even though I'm now working for the private sector, there have to be clear boundaries to a market because remember, the invisible hand of the market is blind as well as invisible. So there have to be very clear rules for markets. Now, having said that, what attracted me to this role and what I do is I work on Salesforce's own climate portfolio, our climate footprint, mostly on nature-based solutions. So what do we do in our carbon credit purchasing? We also have a philanthropic goal of planting 100 million trees or conserving 100 million additional trees. And that role within Salesforce has a lot of potential replication value across the private sector, which is what attracted me to this role because Salesforce is a customer facing company. We have over 150,000 other companies that are our customers and their success is our success. You know, I think that's a really important point you're making, which is that a B2B company is a force multiplier. What you do well compounds through your customers. And sometimes I think B2B companies sort of shy away from being more responsible because they feel like it's only companies that are facing consumers that really you know, face those challenges. You made a comment before and used the term that for those not familiar with this space, I'd love you to dig into more. So nature-based solutions, what does that mean to the layman who might be an entrepreneur or might be in a leadership team at a company? 
I'm a forester by background and I live and, and work on a farm. Whenever I can get an hour, I go outside and help my family run our small family farm here in Denmark. So for me, nature is always all around me. That's why I take it for granted. But of course, more than half of the world's population now lives in cities. For them, nature is usually something that happens somewhere else. Nature is underpinning everything we do, consume, eat, and most of our culture on planet Earth. And I think, in fact, as a civilization, we've forgotten how important and essential nature really is for us. Nature-based solutions is a technical term for any solution for a societal problem, if it's climate change or flood prevention or drought or having clean drinking water that is based on nature. So New York, for example, gets most of its drinking water from a forested watershed, just like more than 30% of all major cities across the world get their drinking water from key forest watersheds. So that kind of provision of nature for our daily needs is something that is largely overlooked in our economy. It's not visible to economic decision-making. Nature-based solutions and that concept is shifting the dial a little bit towards recognizing what nature can do for us to ensure we reach the sustainable development goals. We have a thriving business, thriving societies, healthy people. We're making that a bit more visible with this concept called nature-based solutions. And I think, you know, there's an important point for people to take away there, which is it's a double whammy in the sense that the economic models that got us into trouble in the first place have always excluded externalities or the true cost to nature in those economic models. So we've been flawed from the outset. But then again, many of the solutions we're looking to don't actually prioritize enabling nature to solve for climate, to restore biodiversity and so on. So I think we've got a couple of challenges there. And I know that, you know, Tim, you worked in the past with the Secretariat of the Convention on Biological Diversity. Can you speak to the sort of hand in glove, the sort of relationship between nature, biodiversity and the climate crisis so that we can better understand the larger context? So at a very high level, nature can contribute about one third to mitigating climate change, which means sequestering additional carbon from the atmosphere. Also a significant portion of adaptation needs, building more resilience into societies and into ecosystems. But at a more down to earth level, what this means is that if you invest in a mangrove to manage flood prevention for coastal communities and cities, that can be many times more cost effective and have other co-benefits than building a seawall. Mangroves are, for example, the nurseries for many of our commercial fish stocks. They spend the first few weeks, sometimes months of their lives as little fish hatch in the security of mangroves before moving out to the open ocean. So mangroves are sort of a, a rock star among trees. They have so many multiple co-benefits and they sequester so much carbon. But many ecosystems play roles that are often overlooked. Wetlands, for example, are huge carbon sinks. We have to understand the role of nature at the moment in making climate change worse because we are managing nature in the wrong way, but potentially to significantly help us navigate climate change, reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere, help societies adapt to climate change. 
You know, I think a lot of times people don't realize, and it's only in the last few years we've had this dialogue, you know, this codependency between treating nature better so nature can you know, leverage its innate regenerative capacity to help address climate. And then by reducing our carbon emissions, we're addressing the climate crisis directly and also enabling nature. And they go hand in hand. And, you know, you mentioned something that there is growing awareness in and around the climate crisis. We look at the headlines every day. We look at the latest update from the IPCC report, which says, you know, we are facing severe consequences in the 2030s now in terms of missing our target of 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in temperature. Help us understand how a technology company like Salesforce and the type of concerns that you have sort of through the lens of climate and wetlands and peatlands, how do they fit together from a practical point of view in business? So for Salesforce, we come to this conclusion to focus on nature because we follow the science. We have very clear evidence in the IPCC reports, and there's an equivalent to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for Biodiversity. It's called IPBES, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Those are the world's authoritative bodies on scientific consensus on climate change and on biodiversity loss. We are basically implementing what they are telling us. Nature has a significant role to play. There are things we can do quickly and we can do today to reduce emissions from nature. Deforestation, for example, is about 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. If deforestation was a country, it would be the third largest emitter. So we have to stop deforestation. Very clear. We have to also turn nature into a more effective sink, allowing nature to recover, be restored. And that will have benefits across many parts of our lives. And I think the way to people's hearts and minds is via what we eat and what we drink, mm -hmm. rather than an abstract concept like CO2. Because right. the global food system is about 25% of all emissions. It's responsible for 70% of all freshwater withdrawals, the majority of biodiversity loss. We change the way we produce and distribute and consume food. We change a lot of problems. Yeah, Come sure. back to your question. We follow the science and the science led us to nature. In addition, we see Salesforce, of course, as a key technology provider to help hundreds of thousands of companies tackle this issue by measuring their carbon footprint, by measuring their nature footprint. You know, you cannot avoid how critical these sort of commitments are now. You look at the headlines every day, as I mentioned, yet at the same time, in many people see that, you know, these sort of commitments are a cost center and not a profit center. And there's economic headwinds, there's the prospect of inflation and so on and so on. You know, there's even, you know, a recession potentially here in the US and around the world. I read that you pointed to this concern that ESG commitments can be too expensive and too costly and they're difficult to monitor. So what is the solution for companies of all sizes right now? How, if they have a concern, how do they get involved in a way that's responsible to their business as well? So luckily, the picture you just described is getting quite nuanced and there's more and more businesses who are seeing saving the world as the biggest business opportunity we've ever had, which I think it is because it has to be done. And also between the US and the EU, there's about a trillion dollars now of real money that's going to be pumped into the economy for climate action, for nature action, with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the EU New Green Deal. Last this month, there was another net zero industry act 
issue that focuses on green technology in the EU. So this is going to be big business for a lot of companies. And I find it encouraging that last year, 25% of all venture capital went into climate action, climate solutions. So this issue of seeing this as a cost is shifting, but it is also a cost in the first instance. But remember that when you reduce your emissions, you reduce your energy consumption, you reduce your costs. So for us, emission reductions are cost reductions. And that's true for most companies by far. And tell me this, you know, a lot of issues in the US get politicized and there's been big pushback. You know, there's been anti-ESG legislation in around 20 states and, you know, President Biden was considering his first veto to rectify that. And you also see a huge pushback against what is called woke capitalism. So just at a time when it's becoming so critical for us all to leverage the might of power and power of business to solve for these issues, there's the other end of the spectrum, which is saying that, you know, this is really going too far and it's not necessary at all. How do you handle folks who are looking at it from that perspective? Because we've all got to work together, I would assume. I'm talking to you from Denmark, as you know, which is in the European Union and the Political climate here is completely different. So it's at right. the moment for me a bit of a dichotomy that I live daily between the headwinds in the US and in the EU in contrast. On the 1st of January 2024, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive comes into effect. That will impact 50,000 companies over the next four years, about 11,700 companies in the first year who have to report on their emissions, on their biodiversity impact, on their waste, on their freshwater withdrawals, on their DEI, on social and governance aspects. So there is absolutely no discussion in the EU whether a business does or does not have to do it. This is the law from the 1st of January, 2024. And it is the law for big companies who do a lot of business in the EU, whether they're American or European. So for companies like McDonald's or Starbucks or big companies, and that includes basically all the big U.S. companies, they will have to do it from the 1st of January. So that discussion in the U.S. is a little bit out of context, in right. my view, in terms of the global long-term trends, which leads towards including sustainability and ESG considerations in your sound economic business decision-making, because that's the only way forward for all of us to still have an economy to do business in. in the no, future. absolutely. If, if the integrity of the natural, the living systems isn't there, there's no business that can thrive. There's no society that can thrive. And, you know, when I think about this larger movement and the fact that Europe has typically always been ahead of the U.S. in terms of, you know, climate disclosures and new legislation and, and regulation, you know, I'd like to characterize the shift that you're talking about as a shift from the carrot to the stick in the sense that for the last five, 10 years, you've been rewarded for showing up this way when it wasn't mandated and you got reputational benefits and it helped your culture and attract the talent you needed. But now it's getting punitive. Would you say that's fair? I mean, what are you seeing? Is it becoming more regulated and more punitive? I absolutely see that shift from voluntary to compliance as well. And that changes everything. It changes how pioneers in this field are viewed, but most importantly, it changes the entire playing field. It levels the playing field for everybody who's on it. And this is 
a big win for the environment. It's a big win for climate that we have that kind of legislation, for example, in the EU coming. There's also an SEC ruling expected. And if you look back in the environmental movement's history since 1972, all the big wins that we have had, the Lacey Act, the Endangered Species Act, Clean Air Act, there's the Montreal Protocol closing the ozone layer. All of that was spearheaded by a few pioneers. It was then taken up and became regulated. And once everybody had to do it is when you could see the big changes. Right. If you look at the voluntary carbon market right now, even though that's growing rather fast, that only exists because of a massive global policy failure. There is no price on carbon in most countries. And because that is not the case, we can still treat the atmosphere as a free dumping ground for CO2. And that will ultimately have to change. We have to take action now. Inaction is the biggest risk of all. Right. No, absolutely. And you know, there's also a couple of concerns that I'd like to ask you about. The first is, you know, there's been reports out there that indicate that a lot of these voluntary carbon markets, they're sort of like phantom credits. They don't actually deliver the environmental benefit that they claim to have. Have you, you know, what's your opinion on that? Because, you know, if a lot of companies are showing up and want to commit to offsetting their carbon footprints, but it's not really making a difference, and that disincentivizes the whole market to participate. The voluntary carbon market is so important and at the same time complex that there's a few things wrong with it that we have to fix. A lack of transparency, a lack of high quality supply, a lack of clear criteria for demand. Who can actually buy? What kind of commitment do you need? So soon we can fix all that. Then we come to the question of what quality of offsets of carbon credits you should buy. That's very complicated. Luckily, we have a team of highly skilled experts who are looking into carbon credits and their quality. For companies who don't have that, they are right now absolutely confused and scared to right. enter this market. There's potentially, if we could scale up the voluntary carbon market, it could reach 30 or maybe 50 billion by 2030. Money going directly into climate solutions, into nature-based solutions. That's money that's desperately needed. So for me personally, it is quite painful to see all these companies who want to do something but don't dare to enter the voluntary carbon market because of fear of greenwashing backlash and of yeah. uncertainties. So we have to fix that. We have to get more transparency into the market. But just the way you framed the question shows that the headlines in the media have actually shot past the goal of ensuring transparency because you said a lot of these credits have concerns. The concerns were with a subset of credits on avoided deforestation with one, well, admittedly the biggest registry out there. And those are valid concerns, but there are many, many, many very good projects out there that do amazingly well for the climate, for nature, for people. And that is still the majority of projects. So we should not let the need to improve stand in the way of taking action because we have to do something even if it's not perfect right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that the sort of clickbait of headlines can almost mischaracterize what is an emerging marketplace, so much of which is doing really good work. But, you know, it only takes one headline and, and that to just sort of, you know, trigger a whole series of news stories that can then discredit the larger opportunity 
But you pointed to something, you know, greenwashing and the concern that companies have that want to participate. There's also green hushing, which, you know, so many companies now are doing many things to be more responsible to our future and to regenerate the planet and so on. But they're scared of talking about it because they're not doing everything right. And they'd rather do nothing than do something wrong. So any advice to companies who are sort of really showing up meaningfully, but are sitting on their hands and not talking about it, not getting the credit for it? Well, I think there's no easy solution to green hushing because in addition to the risks or to the reputational risks, if despite all your due diligence, you make a mistake, and this is a very complex issue, there's no easy solution to that. But I would still give the advice to these companies to keep doing what they're doing and to keep investing in climate action, in nature-based solutions, because we're running out of time. The IPCC report came out saying we are most likely going to miss the 1.5 degree target. And one thing to remember, bringing us back to the link between climate and nature, is that nature does not work in a linear way. It doesn't work like a spreadsheet where you can see, oh yeah, this year we have 1.1 degree, next year 1.2, and maybe 1.5. This is not a linear progression of climate impacts. Nature works in leaps and bounds and by tipping points, which can cascade us very quickly into a very different planet where none of us really want to live, whether you are wealthy or poor, or we're all in the same storm, as Greta Thunberg said, but we're definitely not all in the same boat. Of course, this will happen. Climate change will impact the most vulnerable first, but it's coming to all of us. And it's coming closer and closer very quickly. And, you know, you've been an expert in this field for some time. And I think one of the things that were observed over the dialogue ever since global warming was the appropriate term through all the different versions or different expressions of climate crisis, climate emergency, and so on, is the tone of voice you need to strike, not only with external stakeholders, but internal stakeholders inside a company to communicate that there's urgency without disincentivizing with them, out them throwing up their hands and saying, there's nothing we can do, or what can one person do, or it's too late. Tonally, what has been your sort of learning as to the best way to approach it? So Michael uh, E. Mann wrote a great book called The New Climate War, and he's describing the very quick step some people take from denialism to doomism. You know, mm. first of all, it, the climate change wasn't real or wasn't really happening. And then a lot of those people now say, oh, it's too late to do anything about it. Both is wrong. It is definitely happening and it's not too late to do something about it. The tone that works, and probably the only tone that works, is to inspire people into action. I think scaring people into action does not work. It's important because it raises the awareness, but people are left feeling powerless when they read these dire predictions. It's important to inspire people into action by showing what leadership looks like and making it scalable so that people can replicate it. In our case, people meaning other companies and those teams who hopefully take inspiration from the Trillion Trees Initiative that is one of our flagships to conserve, restore, and grow a trillion trees, which is more of an aspirational number. It's actually a very, very, very big number. And we're at 130 billion committed right now from companies and governments. But that kind of taking big, bold actions and having others around you that you can work with, that's the way forward. It's the only way to take meaningful action. And, you know, 
your point is well taken. I mean, the whole focus of Lead with We is really about collaborative leadership. How do we co-create or, co you know, or course correct our future together? So speaking to the Trillion Tree Initiative, I mean, a big ambitious number. What does it look like? Because it's kind of like a blueprint for what we've got to do on a number of different levels. Like give us a sense of the shape of, you know, business and the different corporate partners that are involved. Also those in the public sector, like how does it work and, and how does everyone coordinate their efforts to get the result? Before the industrial revolution, there were still about a trillion and a half trees more on the planet than we have now. We're down to about 3.1 trillion. So a trillion trees is like adding a third of all the trees on the planet. I think that is a very tall order, even if you have a whole decade to do it. But we're doing a good part of that. And success here looks like success anywhere. It's a team effort. We have 81 other companies who've joined us already. We're looking for more companies to join us. The US government, the Chinese government, other governments have made significant commitments as well. What this looks like in practice is that we work with the best available tree implementing, tree planting, tree conservation organizations out there to conserve forest, restore forest ecosystems, and that we provide them with the necessary resources, hopefully also resources at a level, if we get more companies involved that make a real difference to not only regrowing more trees, restoring forest ecosystems, but also limiting deforestation. Because when you're in a hole, the first rule is to stop digging, right? So we have right. to stop deforestation while we also restore forest ecosystems. We're part of the LEAF coalition. That's an effort to reward jurisdictions in developing countries for drawing down their deforestation rate. It's basically the next generation of what's been rightly criticized in the avoided deforestation methodology with Vera at the jurisdictional level, you will reward entire provinces in or states in Brazil, for example, by drawing down their deforestation rate, which right. requires a mix of policy incentives, changed private sector behavior. And that can only happen if you push all of those levers at the same time and at the right time, then you can make a difference to deforestation. And, you know, deforestation is so critical. And we always hear of the Amazon and forests more broadly being the lungs of the planet. At the same time, the oceans, in many senses, the true lungs of the planet, and without which that cascading effect in terms of biodiversity in our futures gets, you know, very, very acute. So I know that Salesforce has launched its initiative to scale, you know, ocean-based carbon credits. So what does that look like? I mean, we've heard about overfishing and a loss of food stock and so on. But what is an ocean-based carbon credit? We've made a commitment to buy at least a million tons of blue carbon credits. And last year at COP27, we launched the high quality blue carbon principles and guidance to define exactly that. What is a high quality blue carbon credit? So blue carbon can come from mangroves, which is a coastal ecosystem. It can come from kelp can come from seagrass restoration. Seagrass meadows are high carbon habitats. And in restoring these critical ecosystems, you can measure just like you can on terrestrial ecosystems, though it's a bit more difficult in the ocean, what the difference is to the carbon uptake. What is the difference of a hectare of restored seagrass meadow of hectare of 
restored mangrove forests. So that is that is what we mean with blue carbon. Right. And what progress do we have relative to the oceans as compared to forests around the world? Because, you know, one of the great challenges is the oceans are often unseen. So much of the cost is below the line, you know, the, the water level. So can you give us a sense of what's going on at an oceanic level? So in the last few years, we, could, we definitely saw much increased awareness of ocean health and ocean resilience and how important it is for people. Fish is still, and wild fish, not from aquaculture, is still the number one protein source, the number one animal protein source for humans on the planet by far. So the oceans are not only critical for the climate, they're critical for livelihoods, for, as you said, for biodiversity. I'm quite hopeful about the future of the ocean. Just two weeks ago, we finally had agreement on UN treaty to regulate the high seas, which were basically the wild west of the ocean, where there were no regulations on overfishing, but also on any kind of fishing, because it was a global commons, right? Or still is until that treaty is negotiated. And, and in effect, it is a free for all, like nature has been for too long and for too many for us. We are now starting to be on the losing end of that tragedy of the comments of the global free for all or the free lunch that we're all eating of show. Sure. It's not free at all. It's costing us. Buffet. It's not free at all. And yeah. we're also getting to the state where we have to, we have to say nature's bank account is overdrawn. We have to replenish. We have to restock. We have to restore in the long-term interest of humanity because we can only have a functioning biosphere with functioning societies, with healthy people, if we have healthy nature. I think the most important shift that we have to see, whether it's the ocean or the forest or nature in general, is that nature is not a commodity or a resource. We are part of nature. And if we see ourselves as part of nature and see the species around us and ecosystems, not just as a resource that we have the right to use and use up, but as fellow species that we share this planet with, which is our only home, then that will change the way we address nature and we see natural resources as more than that, as resources not only to be used up, but also to take care of, that we are the stewards of nature. Yeah, it's interesting. We talk about resources as if we can go back to them and draw from them time and time again, as opposed to regenerate, which is the more that we enable life, the more that that life can serve us. And that shift in perspective is coming quickly. But, you know, it, when I think of indigenous, you know, tribes around the world, they've known this forever. It's sort of this, this inherent wisdom that they have. And somehow we lost sight of that in business. And, you know, coming back to the core business that you have at Salesforce, tell us about your net zero cloud, because if a company is interested in doing this, how do you make the, how do you provide a solution that's more sustainable so that everyone can participate and we can sort of start to point things in a better direction? So all of these 50,000 companies that soon in the EU will have to report on their emissions, most of them have sort of a bunch of spreadsheets and difficulties even finding out what their emissions are and where they are, even for scope one and two, let alone in the supply chain and the value chain and scope three. So making this easier and simpler for companies is the first step to ensure they can identify where and how to 
reduce emissions, identify the low hanging fruit. We're building this out over time into a tool that can cover the entire ESG spectrum. Biodiversity is very high on the next to-do list for businesses and is a big part of the EU directive, the CSRD. And I think making these kinds of tools available to as many customers as possible is one way to accelerate climate action, to accelerate nature action, because it will make that footprint that companies have visible to themselves, to their peers, to the governments. It is not mandated, so it's no longer a choice. And we will see, I think, a big uptake of tools like that. There are maybe other tools like that out there as well. But we'll see a big uptake of tools like that because companies will need to have a clear picture of what they do with their resources. And as you said, this has been true for most of humans, most of humanity's history, that there was just an abundance that we now see the planetary boundaries of that abundance because right. we are living beyond our means. We have to find a way how we can increase well-being, how we increase quality of life without ever more resource-intensive and resource-extracting economic activity. So what does the economy of the future look like? Technology plays a key role in that, of course. And I hope Salesforce will be a big part in shaping that future economy. Well, it's, it's a great point because I think in some ways, and the media is complicit in this, technology right now in the headlines can maybe mischaracterize in terms of AI and chatbot GBT4 and all these things going on. But tech will have a very critical role in allowing us to see what we didn't see and to share it in ways that weren't possible before. So if you were to cast your eye three, five, because we've got you know, 2030s around the corner, it used to be 10, 20 years down the track, and now it's three, five, 10 years down the track. I mean, what role do you see tech playing in terms of creating a sustainable future? What would be that big picture? There's two main buckets. One is solutions that can directly help us with climate actions, and they include remote sensing. If I look back just five years ago, it was almost impossible to estimate correctly the amount of carbon or of biodiversity in any given polygon on the planet. But there are now several tools out there that I can, from my desktop, fairly accurately see how many trees there are. Is that area improving or degrading in biodiversity? So the progress in that area has been phenomenal. Right. And then, of course, there's the entire area of awareness raising and giving people meaningful action platforms for taking climate action. And here, technology is absolutely critical. Right. Whether it's knowing the environmental footprint of the products you buy, knowing what company has what kind of ecological footprint, what kind of carbon, what kind of nature footprint. These things will become much more transparent over the next few years. And technology will play a leading role as a differentiator between the companies that are on the right and on the wrong side of history, because this is clearly a historic watershed. Right. We either make it through this climate crisis with the civilization as we know it, more or less intact, or we don't. And there's right now, it's a bifurcated road. There's, there's no, not a lot of other options left. No, it's very true. It's so funny. We talk about history books and let's just hope there's someone around to read them. I mean, it's just the level of the crisis is so extreme. One of the challenges, and you know, at WeFest, my company, we focus a lot on 
the storytelling, the branding, both to internal stakeholders and external. Over the last several years that we've all been involved in this work, we've seen it go from sustainability to regeneration, to climate, to net zero, to net positive, to bio credits, and now nature positive. You know, one of the challenges is it's moving so quickly, almost as a, it's mirroring the exponential crisis that we have, but the terms are changing so quickly. How do we capture that narrative and share it with folks in a way that makes, that they can put a pin in it and do something around it? Because I, I suspect that a lot of our listeners will go, that's great, but as soon as we try and do something, it's already moved on. The conversation has moved on. What would your advice be? Well, two, two points on this. One is it's one of the reasons I like nature and doing things in nature and with nature because there's so many, there's so many low risk or low risk activities you can take that are guaranteed to have benefits, whether you have benefits for everything on the 17 sustainability goals of the UN or just for a few, it doesn't matter, but go out there, get connected with nature, do something for your local forest, plant some trees. It will ground you and it will give you a perspective on the things that are useful and that are right to do. The other aspect is let's not get stuck up too much by labels because they come and go. One of the big benefits though of the UN sustainability targets and of the 17 sustainability goals is that it's the globally agreed blueprint for humanity. All governments have agreed to it of what we need to do to stay within safe planetary boundaries, to have well-being for all, health for all, clean energy access. Everything is in those. So all these labels like net zero, nature positive, they're all subsets of that right, overarching, architect, biggest, yeah. biggest tent. So wherever you see yourself in that big tent, or whether you want to focus on gender equality or want to focus on education, it is all within the 17 goals. What we see more and more, and here technology can play a key role again, is how much these goals are connected. You've probably heard about one of the most effective ways to both reduce poverty and to address climate change is to ensure that girls in developing countries go to school longer, have higher levels of schooling, yeah. because that influences family planning, it influences the labor market, it influences basically the trajectory of entire countries. So these kinds of connections between the sustainable development goals are everywhere. And once you start, rather than seeing it as a challenge, I would see it as an opportunity. Pick up the thread somewhere where you feel comfortable, whether it's education or climate change or nature action. And you will see that by doing something for the sustainable development goals, there's a lot of connections and positive side effects of your actions that you haven't even considered when you started. Yeah, and I mean, that positivity is so critical. I think, you know, there's an information vacuum around all the good things that are going on. You know, I am not pessimistic. I am very aware of the issues that are going on, but I'm also incredibly encouraged by the just the density and growing number of commitments that are being made at a huge macro level and also by individuals on the ground. I mean, can you speak to how... What are you seeing in terms of ecopreneurs, young companies out there that are sort of rising to this challenge, are coming into business to solve for this issue? 
A lot of people under 30 that I speak to, they all want to be ecopreneurs, whether they use that word or not, but they want to do more than, than earn a living. They want to contribute. They want to make a difference. So that's what we call ecopreneurs, people who make it their life's mission to help with climate change or reverse nature loss. And Salesforce has been investing in a lot of ecopreneurs through Uplink, which we co-founded with Deloitte a few years ago as well by the World Economic Forum. There's now about 50,000 people connected on Uplink and we run specific challenges, for example, just now one on sustainable forest management. And then the winning ideas from startups and from ecopreneurs get rewarded with network, with grants, with opportunities to grow. And there's a lot of that happening now. There's a lot of startups, accelerators for ecopreneurs. So that also gives me a lot of hope, but we need much more than that. We need the ecopreneur revolution. We need hundreds of thousands of people who make it their lives mission, make it their livelihood to reverse nature loss, to slow climate change. And this brings me back to the point of food, because if we change the way we farm, we change the way we can tackle climate change, we turn around the nature crisis, we turn around the freshwater crisis. So attracting more people into this field of regenerating the land, restoration of ecosystems, regenerative farming is very important. It's right. an area that is, has been neglected and we take for granted, but that is changing. There's a lot of momentum now of people wanting to know where does their food come from? How is it grown? How can I be self-sufficient? How can I regenerate a piece of land? So that gives me a lot of hope being a small-scale farmer myself, right? even though it's just on a hobby farm. Yeah, it is, it is that personal connection to the land that you have, that I had growing up in Australia, where you just go out into the bush every day and be immersed in nature and the smell of gum trees and eucalyptus, and you just took it for granted. And you know, to your point about what's got to change, you've had this incredible career for decades through the lens of you know, biodiversity and climate and now the private sector. If there was one mindset shift or behavioral shift you would tell us needs to happen so that we can move further faster to really you know restore our future what's the biggest thing that needs to change you know a few years ago i would have said things that you can also read in a lot of blogs and textbooks nowadays change the way we consume food change the way we buy change the way we vote all of that is still important and it's essential but now I've come around to that it's, some shape, it's something much more fundamental that needs to change. And at the same time, something that is starting to change. It's something in the human consciousness. It is how we view our role on planet Earth. Because coming to the planetary boundaries that are now very clear for all to see on the horizon, we have to ask ourselves, what is our role on this planet? What, what is our role? vis-a-vis uh, -vis other species, vis-a-vis -vis nature. And feeling that we are part of nature is now, I think, the biggest mind shift that we need. It's the most important thing that needs to shift in people's minds. You mentioned indigenous peoples and their worldview. That is the main difference between people like you and me and indigenous peoples who have been living in nature, with nature, for nature, from nature, for all of their lives. I read a statistic in the World Economic Forum, and I love what they do normally, but if they, when they start to say that half of GDP globally is moderately or highly dependent on nature, I would say that is nonsense because 
what did you have for breakfast this morning? Was it an algorithm or was it, what did you eat? Right. It was something that came from nature. 100% of our economy is dependent on nature. And we have to get back to that realization. We're not some kind of species that is sitting apart somewhere from what happens to our natural existence. We are part of nature. <clears throat> That's the biggest mind shift we need. Thank you so much, Tim. And, and you know, thank you for bringing your insights and experience to the private sector and also helping us guide ourselves back to where it all began. I don't think we're learning something new. We're just remembering what we forgot, that we are part of the natural world. And when we serve nature, then nature can actually better serve our future as well. And as soon as we do that, everything can change very, very quickly. So thank you for your time today. And, and thank you for what Salesforce is doing. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. And you can always find out more information about today's guest in the show notes of each episode. Our show is made possible by a partnership between WeFirst, a strategic consultancy driving growth and impact for purpose-led brands, and Goal 17 Media that's building greater awareness of and financing for purpose-led companies. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you'd like to dive even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is now available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you on the next episode. And until then, let's all lead with we.